Hello, and welcome to the first edition of Forward Vision. The Forward Institute has picked up the baton from the RSA in sponsoring a podcast in which I talk to fascinating people about important ideas. We're going to talk about the kind of stuff I've talked about before, ideas, politics, policy, change, but now with a bit more emphasis on leadership and practical action. So I really can't imagine a better guest than the person joining me now, entrepreneur, author, academic, leadership guru, Margaret Heffernan. You're listening to Forward Vision with Matthew Taylor, the podcast to help you think differently, feel differently and lead differently. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. Margaret, how are you? I'm fine, Matthew. Very pleased to be talking to you. Well, thanks. As I say, it's wonderful to have you as my first guest. Now, the last time we spoke at length, I was at the RSA and you were promoting your most recent book, Uncharted, How Uncertainty Can Power Change. And I want to talk to you about that book. It's a great book, but about many other things as well. But I want to start with the sponsors of this new podcast, Forward Vision, the Forward Institute. It's an organisation that's grown a great deal in size, reputation and influence in relatively short period. Now, you've been on that whole journey, guiding that journey. Tell me why you think the Forward Institute's work is so important. Well, I think the Forward Institute is trying to do something that's important, which is to work with leaders from both the public and private sectors to introduce a broader range of ways of changing our organizations to address really critical issues of the time. And I think we have quite a lot of universities and professional bodies that teach management, in other words, pretty much how to do what you're doing better. But I think there's a real need now to create an environment in which business leaders or aspiring business leaders can start thinking much more energetically and, to use your word, practically, about how to be doing different things altogether. It seems to me pretty clear that if we carry on doing what we're doing, even if we do it better and better, we're still going to crash into disaster. So we really need to be, I think, much deeper, much braver in the way that we think about change and our preparedness to do it not just talk about it, not just think about it, not just theorize about it, but actually put ideas into action and learn from what happens next. Yeah, and it's interesting, Margaret. I mean, the Forward Institute comes kind of indirectly out of the banking crisis and the inquiry into what went on in banks. And I think what lay behind that was a sense of, in a sense, it wasn't about individual moral culpability, although there was some of that. It was about more systemic problems. And of course, you with your, you have so many ideas you're associated with, but particularly the notion of willful blindness, which is, I think the brilliance of that concept lies in the fact that it is in the end about a personal failing. It is about the inability of individuals to see risks, problems, failing, staring them in the face. But it's understood through a kind of organizational systematic prism. It's not just about kind of individual failure. It's about how organizations fail to do things. That's exactly right. And I think one of the great insights in the mountain of analysis into the banking crisis of 2008, 
not forgetting that we're probably teetering on the brink of a new banking crisis 2023, was that in organizations, especially hierarchical organizations, people think that their fundamental obligation is to do what their boss tells them to do or what they think their boss wants them to do. And what they don't really take to heart is that while that may be true up to a point, there is a kind of fundamental need, which is if the building's on fire, you have to sound the fire alarm. And nobody ever tells you to do that because it's sort of understood that you'll know that. But actually what the banking crisis showed us was that nobody understood that. Or to use Alexis Jay's wonderful line when she investigated Rotherham, when something's everybody's job, it's nobody's job. And so there's a really hard issue here, which is that all kinds of things in healthy organizations must be deemed to be everybody's job. Thinking about the crises that really threaten or imperil a business, thinking about the legitimacy on which the business depends. These can't be tasks that are stuck into some job descriptions and not others. So that brings you to the hairy issue of culture, which everybody likes to talk about, but nobody really seems to understand, which is how do you create an environment in which people feel responsible, not just for hitting the KPIs in their job description, but for the moral, social, financial health of the organization in which they find themselves. And how do you make that a felt experience as opposed to a theoretical idea? And how do you take what comes out of that mindset and apply it to reinforce the legitimacy of the organization and to drive the change, which as far as I can see, every organization at the moment needs? I agree with that absolutely, Margaret. And I want to get to some of the really we use the words, the hairy issue of culture. I want to get to some of the jagged issues that I think need to be addressed here. So I can tell you a couple of stories and get your response systems. So the first is that a couple of years ago, I think in the kind of little period between the RSA and my current job at the NHS Confederation, I did a talk to HR leaders of large companies. There was a hundred and or so leaders there of very large organisations. And I said to them, how many of you have had a conversation about purpose over the last couple of years? Because, you know, there was a great fashion, I thought it was a, probably still is actually, but a particular fashion at that time, it seemed, just kind of halfway through COVID, for organisations to be saying, no, we're talking deeply about our purpose. And this is something you encourage in Uncharted, is to go back to purpose quite a lot. Now, they all said, yes, we've had a conversation about purpose. And you know what happened then, Margaret? I then said to them, great. So tell me, what dilemmas did that surface. And do you know what? Complete silence. And so I said to them, look, I don't want to be harsh, but if you've had a conversation about purpose that has not identified any dilemmas, I don't know what you've been talking about, but you haven't been talking about purpose. Because to talk about purpose in an organisation, given the context in which we all operate, the different ways in which we're pulled, it is bound to surface dilemmas. I wonder what you think of that, Margaret. Well, I've always had a real difficulty with the whole concept of purpose ever since it raised its very vague head. <laughs> because the business world is fantastic at taking words that used to have meaning and rendering them really meaningless. You know, we have mission, we have values, we have purpose. It seems to me kind of a smokescreen, to be honest. I mean, on some level, you know, I don't really care what the purpose of an organization is. I want it not to break the law. And I want it to do no harm, to use a medical saying, right? 
Hmm. Well, just about every organization in the world right now is doing immense amounts of harm. Its carbon emissions are doing harm. In many cases, I would say most cases, nobody's paying the fair price for anything. That means somebody somewhere down the line is being ripped off. We have never historically paid the true price of the use of natural resources. So I think that I'm less interested in purpose because purpose means I have a lofty goal. I'm much more interested in what are you doing today to mitigate, reduce the harms that your business does and to repair that harm and to redesign your business in a way where it could be a benevolent, not a malign force in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like I think business leaders get up every morning and think, what harm can I do today? That's ridiculous. But I think we have to come to terms with the fact that business has an impact on society, which is valuable, but also another impact, which is costly. And for most of history in the Western developed world, we have been extremely good and got better and better at measuring the valuable impact the business has on the world. And we have been, I think, pretty dishonest about the negative impact which business has on the world. In other words, we have been getting the accounting wrong for centuries. Now, you could say, well, we didn't know. Fair enough. But we do know now. The environmental damage that our means of production creates and sustains, we do know now some of the harms that our methods or cultures of management create. We do know now enough that we need very energetically and speedily to be repairing this harm and to find, invent, discover ways of working in the world that don't do harm. Now, that may sound rather extreme, except there are some business leaders who've been thinking about this for a long time and taking quite a lot of aggressive action, but they are very few and you can name a couple of them. Most business leaders can possibly name a couple of them. They will always say that they admire them, but very few have dared to follow in their footsteps. And this is becoming a very acute crisis. You don't need me to tell you how fragile the world is today in every respect. And yet it's really daunting to me that people who are described as leaders and who think of themselves as leaders, aren't leading. They're waiting. They're following. They're digging their heels in. <laughs> but there are very, very, very few actual leaders embracing the huge challenges that face our age. Everybody will talk about them, but they won't actually change how they're living or the way in which their organizations are functioning. Or they will do so so tentatively or so slowly that while we learn from them, we aren't learning at the speed we need. So, Margaret, I, I agree with that, but I want to return to this notion of dilemma in terms, for example, of the notion of accountability. So, if you are a corporate head, you have an accountability to your shareholders, and that accountability to your shareholders surely creates dilemmas in relation to the fulfillment of the kinds of responsibilities that you have just talked about. And I would say the same thing applies to the public sector, which is the domain I work in, where accountability to politicians, accountability to national targets and imperatives 
often creates dilemmas for leaders who understand that the slavish pursuit of those accountability objectives is actually going to undermine their ability to lead their own team, to be responsive to their own communities, to focus on the well-being of the people they serve. I guess what I'm trying to get at, Margaret, is isn't it necessary for leaders to acknowledge, to own, to talk about those kinds of dilemmas between what they ought to be doing and that for which they appear to be most accountable? Yeah, I think that's right. But I think the so-called doctrine of shareholder value is quite a complicated alibi because the implication even of the phrase is that there is such a thing as a shareholder. The reality is there's a very, very broad diversity of shareholders who want very different things. Some want a quick return. Some want a slow return because they're pension funds or they are pensions. Some really care about how the return is made. Some care deeply about the legitimacy of the organizations in which they've invested, and so on and so forth. So I think shareholder value is frequently grasped as the sort of security blanket with which to simplify decisions, or to use your word, to disguise dilemmas that are staring them in the face. I would love to do dot, 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 but my shareholders won't let me. Well, really, have you tried? It's incredible the number of business leaders I've spoken to who, for example, knew that they were making a huge investment, that this would result in reduced profits for a year, maybe up to five years, who actually had the guts to go to their shareholders and say, this is the plan. And having explained it very clearly and having a fairly coherent strategy, their shareholders were fine with that. So I think... This notion that, well, we're accountable to these people who don't let us do the right thing is a bit feeble. The late and great Lynn Stout wrote a wonderful book on this, you know, the degree to which shareholder value isn't understood in detail legally, but it also isn't understood conceptually in the sense that there is no one shareholder. The shareholder is a very complex beast, but a very simplistic alibi. So I guess what I'm getting at, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Yes, there are dilemmas that business leaders face. I think what worries me is that as they face their dilemmas, they tend to come up with either no ideas to your alarming conversation about purpose, or they come up with one or two. Well, the size, scale, and complexity of the problems that we're facing at the moment means You need lots of ideas, and we need not to be precious about ideas. Ideas are the cheapest part of any aspect of your work that you're going to do. So you need a lot of ideas, because if you're working into the unknown, which you are, if you're thinking about the future, then you need lots of ideas, because quite a lot of them are going to fail. So you need to be prepared with lots of options. And I think what I find discouraging and frustrating, and I know business leaders do too, is the sort of lack of creative thinking in terms of how are we going to do this? There's a lot of why can't we do it? There's a lot of what could we do quickly, low-hanging fruit stuff, which kind of by definition means it's not going to be a big change. But I see a real paucity of creative thinking both in the how and the what. 
And the how, again, to come back to your point, really requires much better, much more practical thinking with the wealth of talent inside our organizations than talking about purpose. I mean, honestly, I don't know where a conversation about purpose would take you except to everybody to agree, yes, we all want to be very purposeful, but it isn't going to take me to what am I actually going to do differently tomorrow? No, well, I agree. And <laughs> I remember a well-known bank which went through a purpose conversation, determined what its values were. And when you went to visit the bank, the values were written in huge glass letters yeah. <laughs> in the foyer, which led people to say, of course, the thing about this bank is that you can see right through their values. Which... <laughs> and Margaret, I do want in a moment to go back to one of your ideas in the book and ask you about what your thinking is about the current debate about AI. But before I do that, I just want to push this leadership thing one notch further, which is the question of, does the leadership need to be personally different? as well. And let me illustrate this point. So look, I'm a leader. And maybe it's just because I'm getting old now. Maybe it's because I operate in the kind of very challenging politics of the health service. But I've never been more aware, I don't think, as a leader of the kind of choice between being ambitious, trying to do what is the right thing to do, and going therefore into really uncomfortable spaces, or kind of thinking, no, actually, there is a kind of less a less ambitious way of doing this. And that is reminding me of something years and years ago. You may have heard me tell this story before, but years and years ago, I went to a a kind of really weird thing. It was called Landmark Forum. It's a kind of form of mass cognitive behavioral therapy. You kind of spent a weekend in a room with someone shouting at you. And we were all there because we were doing something we wanted to stop doing. You know, people were drinking too much, taking drugs, being unfaithful. Or we weren't doing things we wanted to do, fulfilling ourselves, creating the business, whatever. We're all there because we were blocked. Anyway, you spent the whole weekend together. And I wouldn't recommend it. It It's a bit cultish. But at the end... Everyone had to get up and in front of the whole room share their story. And what was absolutely fascinating was that everybody's story was basically this. The reason I am doing X or the reason I'm not doing Y is because it's hard being me. And that was the story that got revealed over this process. And I've always thought that that is true of organizations as well, that one of the reasons why it's often the cover-up that kills organizations is that when organizations do something wrong, they have this story. And the story is, yes, but it is so hard being, I don't know, Metropolitan Police or a member of parliament or a company with shareholders on my back. And therefore... I have to take the low road. So a lot of what Forward Institute does is quite personal. It's quite intense. Do you think that the modern leader needs to be willing to, as it were, own their own feelings, talk about their own feelings, recognise how personally challenging leadership is? I do. And I completely identify with what you were saying about this sort of, gee, it's so hard to be me narrative. I'm afraid my response to that always is, well, whatever made you think it was going to be easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, if you want to do something meaningful, you should pretty much expect it to be hard because if it's easy, then it won't be meaningful. I mean, I'm very struck by people I work with and work that I do, that it's the hard stuff that matters. It's the hard stuff that's meaningful. It's the hard stuff that changes you and drives your own personal development. The easy stuff is always something you already know 
or have already done. So it's repetition. If you want to do something new, you can be quite confident it's going to be difficult and scary, and some of it won't work. But that's how we learn. So yeah, it's going to be hard, but if you don't want to do something hard, then you definitely have absolutely no business aspiring to be or claiming to be a leader. But what about the element of vulnerability in that, Margaret? I mean, I accept that. And that's what I say to myself when I kind of enter into another argument with a part of the Department of Health or NHS England that, you know, look, this is the job you're paid to do and excuse the sexist phrase, man up. But I do find it important now with my colleagues to share with them that I often do find it really difficult. I said to one of my executive team yesterday, I think he was a bit shocked when I said it to him, I said, I've really missed you because he's been on holiday and been focused on other things. And he's a wise person. And when things feel tough, I kind of just need to be able to say to him, do you think we're doing the right thing here? And he'd not been around. I think he was a bit surprised when I articulate it in those terms. Well, I think it's always really, really important and powerful to make people recognize that on personal level as well as professional level, they make a big impact. I mean, that's profoundly motivating for people. There's nothing less motivating than feeling that they don't make any difference, right? So I think that's really important. But I think there's this you know, age-old question, which was, where does change start? Does it start with the individual or does it start with the organization? Does it start with the person or does it start with the work? And I have to say, I don't really think it matters. I would say that every hard thing I've ever done in life changed me. I don't think I could have waited to be the person that the change required. Mm -hmm. I think we have to accept that if we're going to lead, we're going to do things whose outcome we can't guarantee. I think it's very important to be honest about that. I remember once working with a senior leader who was starting a gigantic, incredibly complex engineering project of a kind that was going to use a lot of new technology and was uncertain. And I remember a very rich conversation we had, the gist of which was, the one thing you must not say to people as you kick this project off is it's really going to be fun and it's really going to be easy and it's all going to be great. Because first of all, that isn't true. You should tell the truth. Secondly, if you tell the truth that this is actually going to be very hard, there are going to be times we're really scared about whether we're doing the right thing or not. There are going to be times we can't sleep at night and we're going to make mistakes. Then that actually won't frighten people because deep down in their heart, they know it's true. But much more importantly, as the project kicks off, and you start hitting those really difficult, scary parts, instead of getting scared, people will think, ah, oh, well, this is what our boss said was going to happen. So it's okay. It's part of the normal process. We'll just dig in and carry on. And at the end of it, because it was tagged as difficult, they will have a sense of accomplishment, which is where you tag it as easy, you've already taken away. You can't be proud of doing something easy it was easy, right? If you started to do something that you knew was hard, scary, hairy, and uncertain, then when you get through the other end, that's when you feel proud. And the experience of doing it will have changed you. But I think we have a tendency, very well motivated, mismotivated, 
to want to tell people, it's all going to be fine. It's going to be lovely. Everything in the garden is going to be rosy. We'll get through this crisis. Don't worry. I don't think anybody believes it. I don't think it does anything for a leader's credibility. And I think we owe it to the people who trust us with their time and their careers to call it as we know it to be and to give people the opportunity either to bail out if they're not up for it or to invest in a way more of themselves and their own courage and their own creativity to do work which afterwards they can look back and with some exhaustion perhaps, but also incredulity, look back and say, well, we did that. They said it couldn't be done and we did it. Mm. Well, Margaret, that picks up on some of the themes of Uncharted and it's a great book. I'd encourage people to read it. But I, I wanted to, in the short time that we've got left, I wanted to ask you how those ideas in Uncharted, which was really a multifaceted book, but one of the big ideas in it is is to kind of pushing back against the kind of snake oil salesman of false certainty, those who claim to be able to predict the future, and also the kind of technological determinism yeah. that often underlies that. I'm really interested in how you're looking at the debate about AI. I don't know whether you've seen the Tristan Harris, Aza Raskin talk that they're the people who produced the Social Dilemma film. They've produced this film, The AI Dilemma. But I watched it and it is pretty hair-raising, to be honest, the kind of double exponential curve that is now underway with AI. What observations do you make as we start to see this kind of amazing sight of some of the people who are most responsible for this technology writing letters saying they are terrified about the possibilities that are now opened up? And the point that Harris and Raskin make is that there's no question social media has damaged the world. There are some upsides, but overall, social media has been a bad thing, whether it comes to children's mental health or political polarization or whatever you want to do. But we let the genie out of the bottle and now we can't put it back in. AI is kind of like that times 10. We are now undertaking in real life an experiment which the people who really understand it are very frightened about and nobody seems to have the capacity to do anything but just cross their fingers. So I'm kind of interested in your perspective on that debate. Well, I think it's about time. I mean, I've been banging on about this for years. I, mean, I did a speaking engagement for Hitachi, I don't know, four or five years ago, saying this is really very dangerous and we need to pause and think about it. You know, there are just gigantic problems to which nobody I've talked to has found a technical solution. So there are sort of three thoughts running around in my head at the moment. The first is that we tend to be very bad at stopping things that haven't happened yet. In other words, we lack, I think, the full imaginative capacity to see what could happen and believe that it's dangerous enough to act. We prefer, and this comes back to our kind of addiction to certainty, we prefer to wait and see what happens and then respond. That's kind of okay in some situations, but in others it very powerfully is not, and AI is one of them. I happen to think quantum computing is another. These are some seriously bad ideas. Some people at least have the imaginative capacity to see how they could go wrong, and we need to act before they go wrong. The great lesson to us in this, of course, is the climate crisis, which we've known about for decades. And again, we've waited until the danger is incontrovertible. We're still waiting. 
But of course, what we fail to accept is that by the time the danger is here, we've lost control of it. So this desire for absolute 100% certainty before we can make a choice is an extremely dangerous habit. In the context of AI, it is a habit underpinned by capitalism. If there is money to be made, we can't not make it. This comes to Michael Sandel's point about capitalism being intrinsically insatiable. We won't stop it till it breaks, so it will break. We're simply unprepared to say, no, I'm not going to go any further. Because if there's money to be made, ah, my shareholders want that. I want it in this absurd race to see who can be the richest man in the world. It's as if we're terrible children who just won't stop eating stuff that's going to make us sick and kill us. So that's another big part of the issue, which is the profits implicit in this stuff are gigantic. And there are lots of very hungry people who want those and don't really care what happens because they think they can buy their way out of the consequences. The third thought in my head is a much more positive thought, you'll be glad to hear, which is we have kind of been here before in the sense that, and I wrote about this in Uncharted, when new fertility technologies emerged in the 1980s, we could see that like some aspects of AI, there were huge benefits, but we could also see that there were deeply, deeply alarming dangers. And instead of saying, well, what the heck, like a thousand flowers bloom, the market knows best, just let it go, which is what we've done with technology to date, the UK government said, actually, this is important enough and scary enough, but also rich enough in potential. We need to think about it seriously and decide what to do. And they created the Warnock Commission, which in two years dug into all of this. Very important, I think, that it was chaired by a philosopher. And Mary Warnock said to me, the great thing about being a philosopher is you have no subject, so you don't have a biased mode of thinking. You're interested only in the thinking. Anyway, they spent two years on it. They consulted an extraordinarily broad range of people, and they came up with essentially boundaries within which this technology could be developed and boundaries outside of which it could not. And they were prepared to say, as modern-day capitalism has been very reluctant to say, thus far and no further. And I think when you have a very significant body of people who understand technology much better, I'm afraid, than our politicians, saying, stop, this is dangerous, it behooves us to listen to them. And it behooves us to say, actually, the markets do not rule the world. We have choice here, and it's time to exercise that choice. And I wish we had done that much more aggressively in the context of climate change. I hope we can learn a little bit of a lesson through AI, because apart from the individual instances, which really need addressing, I think we have to learn to say no to things that make money for some people. We were terrible at distribution, right? We've got to be able to say money isn't the passport to a sort of boundary-free life. Just because something makes money isn't a good enough reason to do it. Now, that is a heretical thought in today's world. It shouldn't be, but it is. 
And if we can reach a moment of saying, actually, no, stop, thus far and no further, and introduce the regulation required to ensure that we live by that, that would be a monumental breakthrough. Well, I'm delighted that we've ended on a, a more positive note. Yes, exactly. Me too. <laughs> these, these do feel like difficult times and the leadership challenge feels incredibly urgent. Margaret, I'm so grateful to you. It's been a privilege to talk with you. Thank you so much. Well, as always, Matthew, thank you for a good, thoughtful conversation. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.